Well, I thought I was special there for a second. No, you're not. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to tell you. Um, what was I going to tell you? My mom. What were you going to tell me? <laughs> My mom. Wait, what are you going to tell me? What are you going to tell me? What are you going to tell me? Who's a good girl? What are you going to tell me? <laughs> Shut up, Sam. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Book Retorts. I'm Sam. I'm Danielle. And this is the podcast about sharing your weird media finds with your friends who don't know what you're talking about. That's me. That's you, Danielle. Just like this week and every other week that we do this. That's true. Or sometimes every week. Who even knows what I'm doing? <laughs> yeah, right? It's like purgatory. It's the same thing over and over again. <laughs> no, it's lovely. I'm sure we're, we're so excited for what we're going to do today. I am. You're probably not. <laughs> Are we? Are we? What, what am I excited about, Sam? Well, today, Danielle, I have brought you the 1996 book Endymion by Dan Yay. Simmons. Yay! It's that time again. <laughs> it's been a while. I figured we had enough of a break that it's time to dive right in. Did we? To the next book in the Hyperion Canto series. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to pay attention now. This is going to be hard. <laughs> I was enjoying not paying attention. Danielle, what else is new? But before we get into all of that, if you actually want to hear Danielle read one of the Hyperion books, you can check out the Mind Duck Books podcast, their episode, The Fall of Hyperion, where Danielle and I are actually guests talking about that very book. Yeah, the book that Sam forced me to read. Forced? I mean, I gave you a choice. You did. It it wasn't a very good one. <laughs> <laughs> the choice was you can read it or not. I don't understand. <laughs> well, I read it, everybody. So I have read book two of the Hyperion Cantos. <laughs> and not book one, amusingly. You know what? I didn't need to read book one. I got a eight-hour summary of it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you can hear all of our thoughts on the Mind Duck Books podcast. I believe the episode is coming out a week after this episode airs, a little more than a week after this episode airs. So keep an eye out for that. Put it on your calendar. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we have to talk about Hyperion. Do I have to summarize something? Uh, yes, of course you have to, Danielle. We need to summarize the entirety of the previous two books to catch us up. Um, Very briefly. Let's just hit the big points in. Yeah, we don't have all day. <laughs> uh, Hyperion. It's a planet. There are a bunch of seven people. Uh, what are they called? Pilgrims. Uh, people who are going traveling to a certain place. I said it. Pilgrims already. Pilgrims. You said it. I didn't hear that. <laughs> all right, that's fine. You were struggling. No, I don't think it came through. Um, so pilgrims Great. going on a pilgrimage. Yes. I mean, that is what pilgrims do by definition. Yes. Okay. <laughs> And they're going to Hyperion. They've Which been tapped. is? A planet. I said yeah. it's a planet. I okay. said that's in my intro to the story. I said Hyperion. It's a planet. Okay. Well, that one I did. I missed that one. So we're, we're all on board here and missing things. <laughs> Hyperion is a planet. They are traveling to it. Uh, we hear each one of their stories all like Canterbury Tales. And uh, sure. there's a bad guy named the, Sh the Sh Shrike. Is, is, is the Shrike a bad guy? No, ambiguous. he's named after a bird. Yes. Uh, he... uh, that's a detail you remember. <laughs> The only way I'm going to remember that the title of his name. Um, he's really into DJing. He loves kittens. He... <laughs> That's our. To be clear, that is our uh, interpretation of the shrike. That is not in the text, but um, I feel it's true. I feel it's true. Uh, they 
they go to this planet because they're trying to, like, save humanity or something. There's a war. There's ousters that are, like, supposedly the bad guys, but they're not. They're probably the good guys. They're, like, Eh, helpful for the future of humanity. Maybe the Shrike is, like, this time-traveling creature that may or may not be evil. He's neutral. He's great. Um, This is amazing. This is great. You're on a roll. (laughs) Uh, They finally get to the planet. Uh, Chaos ensues. A couple of them die. Uh, what's her face? Braun? No, yeah, Braun. Miami well, has a baby. Yeah, strike baby. Magic strike well, baby. Whoa, 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 whoa! Keats, Keats, sh- Keats strike baby. A, sure, well, I don't know the strike energy to this, but she, she has the baby. She ends up having sex with one of the Keatses. There's lots of yeah. Keats, like Keats John Simon. Keats. <laughs> yes, the <laughs> there's poet. Keats galore. Like there's a million Keats. <laughs> there's at least two outside of the original Keats, like there's the a actual human Keats. Yes, um, <laughs> more and- than you would expect in this universe. <laughs> She ends up having sex with one of them, yep. and she ends up having, like, the future baby, the magic baby. And then there's, like, that's it. That's all. Okay. what's more to that story, but... <laughs> I mean, that's a very good job for the, the Pilgrims. I think we need to touch briefly on the politics here that we missed about oh, the... Oh, yeah. There's, yeah. like, the Technicore or whatever yes. is, uh, like, maybe taking over the humanity. Well... They had taken over humanity, basically, enslaved the hegemony, the government. And what was the goal of the Technocore? To wipe out humans? No, I mean, there were three factions in the... Yes. Create an AI thing, bigger thing. To create the ultimate intelligence. Yeah, like a bigger thing than all of them. Yeah, they wanted to create a a technological god, basically. Right, and I don't remember if it's this book or the other book, but you find out that they're in a battle with, like, the other version of... Doesn't matter, either book is fine. They're like the UI is in battle with another. So the UI thing. in the future is battling the human UI, uh, so the human god versus the machine god, and the win? Shrike is part of that war. That's all weird. The important part is some factions of the Technocore want to wipe out humanity, and they launched a strike against the hegemony, disguising it as an ouster invasion. But it wasn't. It was then. It was all the AIs, and it basically, at the very end, do you remember the big dramatic conclusion of the fall of Hyperion? Do I remember it? Yeah, like, well, what happened at the very sort of end that was, like, the big dramatic thing that our hero, Mina Gladstone, did? Uh, I'm sure once you tell me, I'll remember it. <laughs> so, at the very end, she discovered that the, the Technocore existed in the Farcaster network. And they shut down the Farcaster network. Yeah, she blew up all and the Farcasters. Like, people died. It was chaos. Everybody people stuck died. wherever they were. Yep. The interstellar travel suddenly There's somebody became... stuck on the bathroom planet in the yeah, middle exactly. of the river. Manifinitis, correct. That one. <laughs> it's a bad day's face. <laughs> yeah. So she blew up the Farcaster, basically sent them back into like a dark age type of thing where, where like imagine if suddenly cars and planes didn't work were back to like horses and buggies and walking everywhere, you know. And cell phones disappeared and Wi-Fi yeah. went down. All that kind of stuff. Now they're all just stuck and they have to like basically reinvent humanity and make yes. it better this time. Without the assistance of the AI they had come to depend on. Yes. And hopefully that'll be a better future. The end? Well, we're going to find out in this book, Danielle, that's a better future or not. Spoiler, it's not. <laughs> Shocking. What oh, was this called again? Endymion. Endymion. It's also a poem, Danielle, if you, which should surprise you not at all. I'm not at all surprised. Yeah. They've all been poems. Is it a Keats poem? Uh, I didn't look that far into it. I would, I mean, I look right now, I would, my instinct says probably. <laughs> okay. Uh, Endymion, The Sleep of Endymion by Anne Louise Gerdeau. Oh, nope. 
Is it, is it reference Keats? Is it involved with Keats in any way? It's going to blow my worldview so, if it's not. And Demian has a lot of different like Greek relationships. And I'm guessing, and I haven't read the Hyperion poem that Keats wrote, but I'd be surprised if Endymion wasn't referenced in it. You know what? I did skim through the Hyperion poem that John Keats wrote when I went down my John Keats rabbit hole, but I do not remember if Endymion was in there. Either way, it sort of fits into the whole Greek mythos of Hyperion. So maybe someone out there who is someone out there who's a scholar of poetry or a Keats expert can enlighten us as to the origins of Endymion and its relationship to this book. I'm sure it has a lot of very deep meanings that I will miss. We need to have a Keats scholar on here who also has read Hyperion. That would be amazing. That is a Please let us know that if that's exist. a thing. <laughs> that was a good summary, Danielle. I want to give a quick shout out to a slightly better summary of the first book if you're interested. <laughs> Besides the ones that we've done, you can check out the uh, Mind Duck Books podcast where they have recently done Hyperion. They have a very different reaction to it than we did. And they did it all in one episode, not six. So good job on them. That's an impressive feat. So if you want a quicker summary and yeah. Uh, commentary. <laughs> yeah. If you don't want to go back through all the six episodes that we did, you can get that in just one. So check them out. All right, Daniel, are you ready? You ready to get back into it? Yes. No, I don't want to. Don't make me. <laughs> oh, God, no. Daniel, you know you enjoy how crazy this is. Don't lie. I'm trying to mentally... I was not mentally prepared for this today. I know. I want to spring it on you. Big surprise. <laughs> I'll make you pay. Yeah, well, you already have, Daniel. You can sleep <laughs> in Seattle. <laughs> that was good for you. <laughs> this is good for you too, Daniel. Okay. What happens? This is a... What was this? A pl- is this a planet? Did we... Did you and say Dimean that is a city on Hyperion, city. the planet. Okay. Okay. It's also the name of the main character. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Uh, I'm mad already. (laughs) I forgot Uh, and I'm mad again. (laughs) So good. So good. All right. I'm going to start just by reading the first couple of paragraphs of the book because I find the opening of the book when books open this way to be absolutely hilarious. Okay. Go for it. So it opens. Chapter one. Page one. Well, I mean, actually, there's a little bit of a preamble where there's some poetry that I'm skipping over, but you can tell there's going to be poetry at the beginning of this book. So the first part of the story goes... You are reading this for the wrong reason. If you are reading this to learn what it was like to make love to a messiah, our messiah, then you should not read on, because you are little more than a voyeur. If you are reading this because you are a fan of the old poet's cantos and are obsessed with curiosity about what happened next in the lives of the Hyperion pilgrims, you will be disappointed. I do not know what happened to most of them. They lived and died almost three centuries before I was born. If you are reading this because you seek more insight into the message from the one who teaches, you may also be disappointed. I confess that I was more interested in her as a woman than as a teacher or messiah. (laughs) Finally, if you're reading this to discover her fate, or even my fate, you're reading the wrong document. Although both of our fates seemed as certain as anyone's could be, I was not with her when hers was played out, and my own awaits the final act even as I write you these words. If you were reading this at all, I would be amazed. Dan Simmons, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, no. That's like a challenge from the author to like, I dare you to read this. <laughs> and I usually respond by saying, I'll take that there and putting the book down and not reading it. I I remember I was in the library. I picked up a copy of A Series of Unfortunate Events and I read the back of the book and it said, if you're looking for a happy book or a a wholesome story or something like that, like you should put this book down and walk away because this is a book of sad things happen and it's all very sad. Like, all right, I don't need that. And I put it down and never read it. (laughs) It's a shame. They're pretty fun. (laughs) I I bet they are. But the author is going to try that hard to be like, oh, I'm edgy. I'm like, I don't need that BS. Thank you very much. They are sad though. It is true. 
They have a so, dark sort of whimsy about them. Many people love them. That's fine. But like, I'm just obstinate enough that when an author says, you should read my book, <laughs> I'm like, you're right. I shouldn't. Thank you for telling me and warning me away from it. Unfortunately, you're on a podcast now and you have to read these things. Me? I don't have to read this. I enjoy this one because it's so bonkers. All right. Let's do it. So what he finally concludes after some more paragraphs is that the reason to read this is the same reason he is writing it, which is to bring order to the chaos of the events that he is talking about. Okay, sure. Right. All right. So he decides to start with a death sentence, but his or hers, he muses, and he's like, well, I'll start with mine and my most recent death sentence, where he's now floating above Armagast in a Schrodinger's cat box. Oh, boy. I have things to say about this device, Danielle. <laughs> the Schrodinger's cat box is a small self-contained space station that also provides with paper to write this with, I guess. Okay. <laughs> Embedded in the walls of this device is a cyanide capsule with poison gas hooked up to the air system. There's a radiation detector that activates randomly, a small lead door that opens randomly, separating it from an isotope that emits a particle of radiation randomly. So when all of those things align, he's dead. I what? think this is an Why extremely go- stupid way to kill somebody. <laughs> Why? Why go through this much trouble? <laughs> I know. It is so overly complicated. I think he just wanted to talk about Schrodinger's cat and like he gets it very wrong, as most people do with Schrodinger's cat, which is not like, hey, the cat is both alive and dead at the same time. It's not. It was just Schrodinger's way of describing how ridiculous quantum phenomena seem in our macroscopic experience. Like, mm-hmm. of course, the cat isn't alive and dead at the same time. That'd be ridiculous. Just as it seems ridiculous for a particle to be a wave and a particle at the same time or being two places at once or whatever. Right. But the whole idea is it's kind of like blindfolding... Or putting the, the like uh, a firing squad. You have only like, one person with a loaded gun, and it's randomly given out so no one knows who actually killed him. So like no one is directly responsible for his death. But I don't understand why it has to be so complicated. Like it, just it one <laughs> random number generator will be fine. Like it doesn't have to be seven different random things in a floating <laughs> space station that no one's ever going to check on to see if he's still alive or dead in there after a million years. It's more fun that way. Yeah, I mean obviously it's more fun. I it's mean, it's a torture chamber, Sam. If I was a less scrupulous person designing execution systems. That would be the kind of Rube Goldbergian yeah, machine I would design. Yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah. what you would do. Yeah, because it's like, what can I do that's overly complicated and amuses me, but has no practical purpose? So there you go. Anyway, after describing his current circumstances, he decides to go back and actually go back to his first death sentence and start the story there. Okay, good. Hate to get ahead of ourselves. Right. He literally, he's like, I'm going to tell you about my last death sentence. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to tell you about my first death sentence. We're going back. <laughs> He introduces himself as Rawl and Dimian. So Boo. this is a <laughs> And it's 247 years after the fall. Fall with a capital F. I figured. His family lives as itinerant shepherds on Hyperion on the continent of Aquila. When he was 16, he ran away from home to join the Pax-controlled Home Guard, spent a few boring years there, then did some odd jobs, worked as a blackjack dealer, a barge master, trained as a gardener, etc. But he's still referred to as a shepherd in the chronicles of his ties and his time with the one who teaches, because it probably sounds more biblical than blackjack dealer. <laughs> yes, go figure. <laughs> That'd be a better rendition of the I mean, Bible. <laughs> to be fair, like the whole point of the New Testament was, you know, how Jesus spent a lot of time with people who were outcast, you know, like prostitutes and stuff. So I think a black tick dealer and a bartender would be right on, you know, his sort of wavelength of something biblical like that That's in the modern true. version. Yeah. Anyway, later when he was 28, his life changed. He laments how dumb he was as a kid and who knew nothing. He was then working as a hunting guide in the Fens, helping tourists to hunt ducks that had been brought to Hyperion for 
reasons that are unclear why they seeded Hyperion with ducks, but they Why did. Why not? People like ducks, I guess. Do they have chickens too? I, I don't know, Danielle. They certainly don't hunt chickens. They're much less fun to hunt, I suppose, with their inability to fly. That's true. They're a lot easier. Yeah. Like, where's the challenge? Have you ever tried to catch a chicken, though? Sometimes yes, it's hard. I have. <laughs> I was trying with chickens. I caught a few. Eventually, they sometimes just give up. Like, fine, pick me up. I give up. <laughs> On one hunt, he had four rich jerks. He took them out to the fence and set them up. One of them was an especially big jerk. He brought along an energy weapon instead of the usual shotgun for reasons that are unclear. Or fun. Does it just does it just, just destroy the ducks? I mean, this is kind of the thing. Yeah, it's like a laser beam kind of weapon, although it's not called a laser beam. It seems like it would be an effective thing, and shotgun seems like it would tear apart a duck pretty well, too. So what do I know? I'm not a hunter. Don't Don't at me. <laughs> I assume they'd use, like, some kind of bird shot or something. You would hope. It was also clear that this man and the others, possibly, bore the cruciform on his chest, as well as a gold necklace of the Pax Double Cross. Oh, yeah, the cruciform. Danielle, why don't you, like, remind us about the cruciform? Um, one of the stories of the pilgrims. That was a really hard word to remember for some reason. Pilgrims? Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know why. Um, they, it takes place on I, part of Hyperion, right? Yeah. There's like this culture, this group that lives there that is like the descendants of the original people who landed, correct? Some crash landing. Yeah. Not necessarily all the original, but one group of original colonists, indigenous. Yeah, it's like many generations later and they're kind of slow and not very mm-hmm. intelligent. And he realizes after some time that it's like they they have these cruciforms, just like weird fleshy cross things on Parasite, their- Parasites, yeah. Yeah, chests, back, wherever, on their bodies. Ooh. And they, he realizes after some time that if one of them dies, that cruciform like makes them regenerate. Essentially, they become a new body, and it's just like the same person over and over. But that's why they're slowly declining in all their physical and mental skills. Because it's like a copy of a copy of a copy. Right, but it makes you basically live forever, but you become less and yes. less intelligent and capable. You cannot die, no matter how hard you try. Basically, keeps you alive. Also, there was a whole thing about how if you got too far away from the area where the cruciforms were found, they would cause you pain. So you had to go back. So you could never leave the planet. Right. And so one of the pilgrims has one on him. Two? Has two, two on yeah. his. Yeah. Him and somebody else's. And he's on constant, what, super morphine? Is that what it is? Uh, ultramorphine. Ultramorphine. Close okay. enough. <laughs> Good job, Danielle. <laughs> I will give you all the, the <laughs> I'll, I'll give you all the bonus points if you can name the two people with the cruciforms. The two people that mean the two people that are well, the one person, but who the who two cruciforms belong to? Father Dre. Uh huh. And who's the other one? So you got Paul Dre, Father Paul Dre, and then the other guy. I don't remember the other guy's name. Father Leonard Holt. Oh, I, I started with an H. I was like somewhere yeah. in my brain. I was like, oh, that's close. I bring this up because you remember what happened to Paul Dore at the end of Hyperion, the first two books? Does he finally die? He finally dies. Nope. He got promotion. He got promotion. Oh, he becomes Pope. He becomes Pope. He's, He's the Pope. pope. Yeah. But somebody dies. Doesn't somebody die? Hoyt, uh, Hoyt dies. Hoyt dies. Yeah. I mean, eventually Dore also dies, but the cross is put on Hoyt and it's all complicated. Go listen to the series. I can't like, <laughs> we'll be here all day if I try to recap all the craziness of that book. <laughs> all right. Well, that's the cruise form. Yeah. Long story short. Short story long. <laughs> Again, this book does do some of that, like remind you what things do, but I'm just going to shortcut that by having you do it, Danielle. Thank you. Perfect. I may or may not remember. I was pretty impressed with myself remembering all that. 
I am super impressed. You are doing remarkable. This is the best like recall you've ever had. Anything I've done. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, I've had enough time that it's settled into my brain. It's now in long term memory. I mean, for someone who claims to hate these books so much, you certainly have them lodged in your brain pretty hard. That's because you've talked about them ad nauseum for ten years. I don't think I said ad nauseum, but certainly during this podcast enough. <laughs> so anyway, after all, gets them all set up. Some ducks come, they start, like, blasting wildly at them. They're clearly just idiots who just, like, shoot randomly. They're actually, like, skilled in any way with the weapons they have. Mm-hmm. One of the ducks, though, dives towards the boat where Rawl and his dog are waiting. Like, they're chilling out on the skiff. And although he yells them to stop shooting and had told them not to shoot in that direction anyway, the laser gun guy just keeps blasting. And while Rawl manages to dodge the beam, his dog is killed. Oh, that's so sad. I know. And he is upset about that. I would be too. Yeah, no, he is real real ticked off. So he wades out to where the rich jerk is and he's all like, aren't you going to go collect the birds for us? Isn't that your job? And he just starts beating the crap out of him, like holding him under the water and like just smashing him around. Totally fair. I'm on his side. Yeah, absolutely. And he's like, all right, that's enough for today. He's like, everyone pack it and we're going back to the, the lodge or whatever. So that night he's making dinner. And the rich jerk comes out completely drunk with an illegal flechette gun to kill Rawl. But guess what? He can't help monologuing a bit. Well, that's what all good villains do. Yep. So while he's monologuing, Rawl gets to jump on him and wrestles with him until the gun goes off, killing the guy. Oh, so sad. Yeah, really, really tragic. He has the other hunters radioed in and a packed security skimmer comes and leads him off in handcuffs. Six days later... After the usual three-day resurrection of the rich jerk, him and his friends testify that Rawl started the fight by insulting them, which was how the dog got killed. Then he brandished the flechette gun and threatened to kill all of them back at the lodge when the rich jerk died trying to wrestle the gun away from him and stop him, heroically. Yep. Them versus him. Yep. The trial is simply a sham. His lawyer puts up no defense. He's not offered the ability to present any evidence, and he's immediately sentenced to death the next morning by death wand. It's good to know that the law hasn't changed in this amount of time. <laughs> changed from what? Now? To, yeah, to now. <laughs> yeah. It's not really like a whole... It's a little worse. It's a little bit more fascist and like, you know, sh- uh, obviously sham. They try to hide it more these days, at least. That's true, I suppose. Usually, Not necessarily successfully, yeah. <laughs> Sitting in his cell, a Pax priest comes to him and is all, Hey, you haven't accepted our Lord. There's still time. You've got until tomorrow morning. And guess what? You'll get to live again after your execution. Wouldn't that be great? So the cruciforms are like part of the church culture? Yeah. Ew, no. So bad. Yeah. Hate it so much. Oh, so, icky. <laughs> we're going to get into it a lot more later in this book, but the sense is now the church and the Pax... They're now the new government in charge, and part of that is, like, the cruciform, which makes them immortal. Icky, icky, icky. Yeah, it's real gross. And Raw is all like, I am not interested in receiving the cruciform parasite. I do not need to be made any more of a slave, because the price for this eternal life is a lifetime of servitude towards the church. But it's unclear if it's just one lifetime. Like, once you die once, you're off the hook, you get resurrected, and you're on your merry way. Or if it's, like, all of the lifetime. Does like, nobody care that they get, like, less and less intelligent as time goes oh, on? We'll get to that, because it, it, they seem to have solved that problem, Danielle. Well, that's good, I guess. <laughs> anyway, I'm unsure about the actual, like, contract. Again, we're back into contract law of, like, how many lifetimes of service you owe to the church. How many times have we got needed a contract lawyer on this podcast? <laughs> More than you would think, Danielle. It's a real problem for us. We need, like, werewolf contract lawyer. We've needed a moon colony contract lawyer. (laughs) 
Now, cruciform church contract lawyer. It's surprisingly, we got it's like surprisingly litigious in our books, Danielle. <laughs> Who would have thought? But suffice to say, billions of people in the modern universe have taken that deal, unsurprisingly. Yeah, that's not surprising at all. No. So after Rawl sends the priest away, he stews until his execution the next morning. Oh boy, executions in this book, Danielle, are hilariously complicated. So guess how <laughs> they set up the death wand in this book? Uh, I don't know. So what they've done is they set the death one up on a wall. They've mounted to a wall, pointed at the chair that he's strapped to, and they've attached a comm log to the death one with a random number generator. Danielle, it's a random number generator again. Yay! We love those. It generates numbers between, you know, 0 and 150, and when it hits a prime number smaller than 17, it's dead time. What? Why not just... It, why Why that? Yeah. Why any other number? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> why prime number less than 17? Why not just, like... Any number less than 10 cause it, or, or whatever. I don't know, Danielle, to be goofy. Or why even have the random number generator? Again, for the lack of culpability of the executioner? Sure. Like, it wasn't us who killed him. It was random chance. Crazy. No, it's very stupid. and belies the misunderstanding of statistics if you think that, like, random doesn't mean, like, oh... It, it's never going to happen. Like, you're still responsible for this whole thing. <laughs> anyway, I don't know why these execution methods are so convoluted, but I kind of enjoy that they are because it's very <laughs> funny. So during this, Rawl has a brief breakdown. He starts screaming and cursing. The thing goes off and it's blackness time for him. So he dies at the end of the story? Yeah. Books over. Well, that was really good. I'm glad yeah. that we did that. <laughs> All the, the rest of the 600 pages of this book, Danielle, are just illustrations of <laughs> various maps of Hyperion. Uh, that would not overly surprise me, I'll be honest. <laughs> there's actually another, there's another 12 pilgrim stories. No. No. So the next chapter opens with the line, and I love this line, I was not surprised to wake up alive. I suppose one is surprised only when one wakes up dead. <laughs> That's true, I guess. Yeah. Pretty funny. Good job. So Rawl wakes up, he's looking out the window of this tower, and he sees he's still on Hyperion. He's in a stone tower of some sort, which he concludes is the ruins of the city of Endymion, and he's in the university there. Okay. A bald man with blue skin and eyes enters and asks him to dress. He identifies the man as an android, even though it's the first android he's ever seen since they've been illegal since before the fall. Do we know why he's still alive yet? No. Okay. Mystery. Ooh. I love a good mystery. Yeah, you, you, see, you sound so enthralled. <laughs> The android leads him up the stairs to a room stuffed with medical equipment. In the center of all this medical equipment, there's one person on a hover chair hooked up to everything. Clearly, this is all keeping him alive. Okay, why do we need hover chairs? Because they're cool as hell, Daniel. Yes, but why? <laughs> what purpose are they serving? They hover. I don't, I don't understand the question, Daniel. I was like, why do we need hover cars? I would love a hover car. Is it better than a regular car? No. Are hovercraft cool? Yes. Yes, but I'm just wondering, do they have regular chairs as well or only the hover chairs? Are these hover chairs used in a place of office chairs? Are they used for people who have disabilities? Like, what what do they use these hover chairs for? Danielle, you're asking questions. I have no idea the answers to. Like, <laughs> just, I, have, I have not a peek into so the office culture of in. the Hyperion. <laughs> like, is it just easier to get around in a hover chair? Like, what it's is it? It's futuristic, Danielle. It's like saying they have hovercraft and flying just cars. Just because things are yeah. futuristic does not mean they need to exist. <laughs> Danielle, are you familiar with the concept of science fiction? I don't understand your question. Like, why do androids? Do we need androids? What purpose do androids serve? I'm just trying to figure out why we need hover chairs versus regular chairs. Because they're like probably cool, man. Sure. Okay. <laughs> 
That's all I got. That is super cool. That's all I got. So sitting in the hover chair you so roundly dismiss is <laughs> a very old man, weak, mummy-like with age. Clearly, this person has taken centuries of Paulson treatment, even though how they got them was a mystery since the technology of Paulson treatment was lost in the fall, and they're kind of irrelevant with the cruciforms. You don't really need Paulson treatment to keep you young and extend your life if you have immortality in a cruciform parasite. So remind me, when you use a cruciform, like you die, you come back, Do you? are you from a baby on? Do you come nope. back as an adult? You come back exactly as you were. So whatever age you died at? I don't know whatever age you died at. Like, I don't know if you stop aging with the parasite or not. Because it'd be like, it would, it would definitely encourage people to die younger if they came back younger. Like whatever version they were age, when they died. Like with the parasite. I'm not sure if you age or not with the parasite. That might come up later. It's unclear okay. still. The man opens his eyes and Rawl is struck by the power of his gaze. They begin to talk. The man eventually goes, oh, so you know who you are. You have no questions about how you survived your execution. And Rawl just simply like waits and stares at the guy. And the guy's like, good. All things come to him who waits. So that's kind of the tenor of this conversation. As always. Anyway, they bribe some people to swap the death one with the stunner and smuggle them out. And that's not really important. What's important is why. Because he has the same name as the city. Yes, that's exactly why they saved him. He has the same name as the city. I mean, I would assume so. Otherwise, why? Yeah. <laughs> Some tie-in. So Roll knows this why the man is talking. His face is sharp and angular. A satyr's countenance, he says. Uh-huh. Sure. And the man says he wants Roll to run an errand for him. He won't be forced to. He can leave at any time. But with no papers, the packs will arrest him almost immediately because, you know, fascist got a fascist. So you have to show your papers quite frequently? All the time. Checkpoints, papers, all that kind of stuff. Okay. And surviving in the wild would be challenging. He then asks Roll if he's read the poem known as the Cantos. Boo. Which he hasn't. But he has heard parts of it from storytellers and such around the campfire. Though, he says, his family preferred the Garden Epic or the Glennon Heights Saga. Apparently, Rawl was named after a centaur that his mother really liked in the Garden Epic. Now we know. Now we know how he got his name, Danielle. Aren't you happy about that? Too bad he should have read the Cantos, because it's probably going to be relevant to whatever the plot is. Well, he is really familiar with the Cantos also. He just sort of, like, demures here about that, I think, to try to needle the guy. Uh-huh. So the man asks if Rawl believes the story of the Cantos, and Rawl's all like, yeah, does it really matter? And he's like, kind of like, doesn't really believe them, but kind of like tall tales. He thinks they're probably exaggerated, that kind of thing. The man goes on about how just before the fall, one of the pilgrims from the Cantos was a friend of his, Braun Lamia. And after the fall, she gave birth to a girl named Diana. But the girl was headstrong and started changing her name as soon as she could talk. She went from Cynthia to Kate, which was short for Hecate. So maybe it's not Kate, it's Kate. 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 And then to Temis, and then finally to Nia, which is the name she had when last he saw her. So she's living forever. How many generations past is this again? So that was 270 years ago or, or so about Did the child. Did they live longer? No. So the child, he last saw her 270 years ago. Okay. This man has survived longer from right. pulsing treatments. I other got things. it. I got it. He then says, while she wasn't a particularly attractive child, which what? Uh, she was special, unique, and wasn't people were drawn to her. Wasn't she the child of, like, two really attractive people? Well, Braun wasn't, like, a stunner. She was kind of short and stocky because of her growing up on Lucis. And Johnny also wasn't a stunner. He was attractive only to Braun, who was, like, gaga for him, but he was kind of odd in his own looks, too. Kind sure. of short, but big, piercing blue eyes. 
If you say so. That look, I'm just saying what the book says. I'm not <laughs> I'm not passing judgment on these people. I'm not saying like they're not attractive for these reasons. I'm just saying what the book has said. And passing judgment on the attractiveness of a child is not really something I want to get into. What was but her apparently name? the book does. Ania Ania? Ania. So anyway, she was special, she was unique, people were drawn to her. And Roll recalls the part of the Cantos about Braun and the cybered Johnny and how they had a baby who would become the one who teaches. So anyway, Braun died and Ania disappeared when she was 12. And the man at that point was her guardian, but she didn't really care about that. She's like, I was going to disappear. She left a note and vanished. <laughs> he then asks Roll to list the time tombs and what they do. So Danielle, do you remember the time tombs? There's a Sphinx. Yes. There is a uh, time tomb number one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I only remember the Sphinx, I'll be honest. Literally none of the other ones? I'm sure when you say them, they'll sound familiar. All right, so so Rawl, remember, is like, yeah, obviously I remember them. The Time Tombs, they're off limits. They're controlled by the packs. But he lists them out as the Sphinx, right? You got that mm-hmm, one? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The Jade Tomb. Okay. The Obelisk. Sure. The Three Cave Tombs, the third one of which now leads to Labyrinths and Other Planets through a portal. Oh, okay. There's the crystal monolith where Kassad is buried. Mm-hmm. And there's the Shrike Palace. Yeah, I think I just kind of forgot that they were all names of the tombs, and I just thought they were like locations. <laughs> right, yeah, nope, those are the tombs. Those are the titular time tombs. Yeah, well, I got one. You did. Well done. It's the most important one, frankly. <laughs> See? <laughs> what more do you want from me from this book? I mean, your summer was already immaculate. I'm just sort of rubbing salt <laughs> in the wounds now by making you do more. That's okay. The Sphinx. So seven days after her mother died, Ania went into the Sphinx too and disappeared. So if you recall, Saul Wintrob and his daughter went into the Sphinx as at least as a portal to the future, basically. Right. And so Ania went into the Sphinx and disappeared into the future, and the Sphinx only let a few select people enter it, and she was one of them. The male wants Rawl to go after Ania to find her and protect her from the packs, and then flee with her. And when she has grown and become what she must, to tell her that Uncle Martin is dying, and if she wishes to speak to him again, she must come home. Okay. So he's supposed to go through the tombs, assuming they let him through. So this is exactly the thought that Rawl has. First, he suppresses a sigh, because he already guessed that this man was Martin Salinas, the poet. Oh, uh, yeah. What's his face? Martin Salinas. I just said his name. I know, but I didn't remember. Yeah, the guy. The poet. Who the wrote poet. the cantos? Is like, the hey, one that remember was the stuck cantos? To the tree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was stuck to the tree. Clearly, no longer stuck to the tree. <laughs> That's good. I'm glad he finally got off. <laughs> don't remember how. Uh, he fell. I don't. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I think maybe somebody took him off the tree. What, like Braun or someone dragged him off? The, oh, dress yeah, right. Yeah, I think Braun took him off and took him into the time tomb. Right, because he was actually not on the tree physically. He was hooked up to a simulation to the in yeah, the Shrike Palace. There it is. And he broke him out. <laughs> right. Yep. It's all coming back, Danielle. That book was wild. <laughs> So Raw is all like, wait, 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 what am I supposed to do? Like, get past all the pack's defenses, get into the tomb, go to the distant future somehow, if the tomb lets me, wait decades until she's grown, then bring her back in time to visit you? Yes. And Mara's like, ha you foolish child, she didn't go into the distant future, she only went a few hundred years into the future. In fact, she'll emerge in exactly 42 hours and 16 minutes. Don't question how I know that. I just do. <laughs> so does he have to just go get her? Does he have to go into the tombs? Is he just no. supposed to, like, go get her? Yeah, go get her when she exits the tomb in, like, 42 hours. 
Oh, okay, sure. However, the Pax is also aware of this exact timeline somehow and are waiting to capture her. Do we ever find out why everybody knows the timeline? I don't think so. I don't is think it, it matters. Is like a countdown <laughs> clock in front of the Sphinx? Is <laughs> it like 42 hours until the one who teaches emerges? Bong. <laughs> How do we know these things? Because she has a DJ show strike at that same day, and she's not going to miss that. <laughs> well, I, who would, really? Right. No, we have no idea, Danielle. Uh, you're going to be so angry later when I talk about things that the characters <laughs> just happen to know. It's so bad. <laughs> I'm already mad about it. I hate stuff like that. Yep. It, it's even worse when the book is like, yes, I know this is nonsense, but don't question me. Just like, like The character is like, don't ask me how I know this. Just accept it. And no, like, it's no. worse than books that over-explain everything else but with there's like some random little yeah. plot point that he doesn't want to like get into he's like i don't know wave it away wave it away you mean this book here danielle <laughs> all these books <laughs> <laughs> he over explains every single thing in every hyperion book and then when he doesn't want you to like think too hard he just doesn't give an explanation and then it's annoying or tells you to ignore it it's great yeah terrible Anyway, so the packs know this and they're waiting to capture because it's the most important thing in their agenda since the future of the universe hangs in the balance of this person. Who remind, remind me who the packs are again? They're like the military arm of the church. P-A-C-K-S? P-A-C-S? P-A-X. Okay. Yeah. Again, this is – we don't really know. I'm piecing this together because they're just introduced as like the – they remember the force – in the hegemony as the military, and they're like the Pax is like that for the for the church. Do we know why she's important? No. Okay. She's Are the one sure who teaches Danielle. <laughs> yeah, I got it. A very important teacher. Yeah. They have more than 30,000 troops around the Time Tomb Valley, and at least 5,000 of them are Vatican Swiss Guard, which are like super commandos. So has the church grown more popular since everything It is like happened? the dominant... Remember, remember in the book, the Catholic Church had been in decline right, in right, favor right. of things like Zen Gnosticism or the Shrike Cult, mm -hmm. or I guess the Church of Final Atonement, I think is what they called it. Anyway, but apparently, we don't know how yet, but in the intervening 200 years, the church has now become the dominant religion slash government of the former hegemony. That's unfortunate. Yeah. It's not great. Uh, well, I mean, it's not great for the reasons of this being a fascist regime, not necessarily like a commentary on the church of our world, mm -hmm. which I will not get into because, boy, that's a can of worms I don't have time for. <laughs> But if you'd like to listen to our Can of Worms episode, feel free. It is not about the church of any planet. It's great. <laughs> I was going to be a plot twist, Sam. You can't tell people that. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, I'm going to stick strictly to the church of this fictional universe. Any you know, disclaimer, you know, any resemblance to actual people living or dead is purely coincidental. Yada, okay. yada, yada. <laughs> Don't write me letters. I do not want to get into it. So we're all like, okay, that's worse. Let's say I somehow do get to her. There's nowhere to hide. The Pax control Hyperion and the space lanes and every world of what used to be the hegemony. So like, what are we going to do? Does he have a plan for that? Does Martin so have Martin a plan? is like, don't even worry about it. A, I have a spaceship for you. And B, you're going to travel the River Tethys. Sure. Why not? Do you remember the River Tethys, Danielle? No. No. So remember, there was a river that spanned many worlds. Oh, uh, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it went through all these different worlds through permanent forecasters that like- they uses through it all at one worlds. point, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Our, our friend Severn uses it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was also a Keats, by the way. Yeah. All, Keats all the way down. All the way down. <laughs> and so he's like, you're going to travel the River Tethys- and you're going to take her through all these different worlds until she becomes who she must, basically. Even though somehow 
that's going to work because all the forecasts are deactivated. They don't work and the Technicores have banned humanity. So how is he going to do this? Is Martin like a future seer now? Why does he know anything? Danielle, good question. But he's not telling him like what he is foretelling. He's telling him, what I want you to do is do this. You're going to go and get her. You're going to go do this. Yeah, that's but he seems task. to think it has some kind of point. Like it's a requirement. Yeah. Don't know that part, Danielle. No answer to that question. Ever? Or Again, I'm now. only so far into this book, Danielle, I cannot <laughs> okay. tell you. <laughs> I forget. Have you read this one? I forget. I read these a long time ago. Okay, yeah. Probably the last time you talked to me about them. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, was it 10 years ago? Something like that. Easily, yes. So, without Farcasters, only the Pax forces, their puppet Mercantilis, and the hated ousters travel in space. They're still hated? People still hate yeah. the ousters? We'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> so then Martin recites some poetry and tells Raw to think on it. They'll meet at dinner where he can make his decision. Okay. The android takes Raw back to his room when Raw suddenly has a notion to introduce himself to the android. He's like, hi, I'm Raw, and the android identifies himself as Abetic. I will give you a lot of money, Daniel, if you can remember who Abetic is. Yeah. That name's super familiar. Yeah. So Roll instantly recognizes this name as the android from the Benaries. He was like the captain of the Benaries ship. Uh, yeah, I was going to say he was one of the waiters or something, but I knew it was yeah. somewhere around that time. Right. So Roll wishes to talk to him more, and Abetic agrees. He's like, later, I got a bunch of stuff I got to do, so we'll, we'll talk later. So Roll then goes out to explore the ruins of Endymion. At the same point, 6,000 light years away, a PAX task force led by Father Captain Frederico de Soya is destroying an ouster orbital forest and slaughtering the ousters there. That's depressing. Yeah. Rawl informs us that he is not speculating about these events, nor about the thoughts and feelings of the people involved. He knows everything for a fact, and he'll tell us how later. Oh, okay. He's like, don't ask me how I know all this stuff. I'll tell you about it later. <laughs> so that again. Love it. I know you do. Anyway, the PAX task force is massacring the ousters. There's no survivors, and DeSoya is not altogether comfortable with this. Like, he appreciates the ousters are the enemy. Now, the orbital forests are like refueling stations that are used by their military craft, but civilian slaughter really isn't his bag. That's good, I guess. But he does it anyway, because, you know, orders are orders, I guess. Can't go against those. That'd just be crazy. Yeah, right? So suddenly a ship approaches. It's an Archangel-type ship, the rarest and fastest in the Vatican fleet. Sure. Does it have wings? Nope. Then why is it an archangel? Because it's the best of the best, I guess. <laughs> that seems disappointing. Yeah, right? I mean, wings would be cool, but it's a kind of a secret super weapon that can reach anywhere in space in a matter of days of real time instead of the very slow weeks or months of ship time plus the years of time debt. Mm -hmm. So it can so be like- somehow did it somehow gets away from the time debt? Well, it doesn't travel via Hawking Drive, I think. Or something. We'll get into it later, maybe. It's not clear how it works at this point. Okay. <laughs> the he downside answers. is that it goes so fast that the people inside feel an acceleration so great that it pulverizes their bodies into mush. And anyone inside is dead. It kills them and, and liquefies their bodies. So how do they... With their cruciforms? Their cruciforms. You hey, got it. That's gross. <laughs> but kind of a clever use. Like, if you got to have a, a ship that kills you, why not have the cruciforms be people who can use it? Not when you a, come back with your cruciform, do you like recall everything, et cetera, et cetera? Pretty exactly much, yeah. Exactly the same. Okay. Yeah. It's incredibly painful, though. Yeah, I would imagine so. The but resurrection cool. process. So, yeah. That all sounds gross. Don't want it. So as the ship approaches, it has an automated message that they are to resurrect the two passengers in three hours instead of the usual three days the resurrection process takes. 
which is significantly more dangerous, more painful, and more failure-prone. Go figure. So somehow they figured out how to control the resurrection process where they can, like, speed it up or slow it down. You seem unsurprised by this. Well, I don't know anything more about it yet. I mean, it sounds like they, you said they also figured out how to make it so that you didn't lose your... Yeah, I know. Intelligence, intelligence thrown so, at like, you. Now they're, like, sciencing the cruciforms. Yeah, they, they have scienced the cruciform and religiousified them. And we still don't know anything about the cruciforms, except they're no, parasites. Yeah. Amazing stuff. Do they know more about the cruciforms? Like, do they know more about how they work, what they do, Maybe. where they came Again, from? Again, I don't have the answer to those questions yet in this book. Don't like it. It's creepy. It's very creepy. DeSoya accepts these instructions and asks his crew to wake him when they have done the resurrection. Back to Rawl, he's contemplatively walking through the streets of Endymion. He allows himself to feel shaken by all the crazy events, finally. Like, he lets it all sink in. But he doesn't really blame the Pax for his sham trial. More the local politics that cater to them. Like, their local government and politics are the ones who conduct the trial, and they're dependent on the Pax, so they won't do nothing that will tick them off. He knew he was safe here in Endymion, because the Pax don't really care about the ruined city. They only care about the area to the northeast where they harvest and mine the cruciforms. Creepy. So the... Cruciforms are only found on Hyperion still, at least as far as we know. Okay. Humans would be terrible with cruciforms. We shouldn't have them. Well, I mean, you basically figured out the thesis of this book, Danielle. <laughs> I knew that as soon as they were mentioned. Right? Eternal life? What could go wrong? Absolutely nothing, I'm sure. There was a short story I read. I can't remember the name of it, and I, I really wish I could remember because it's a great short story about they figure out a way to let people live forever. Mm-hmm. And overpopulation is such a thing that people are just packed in tightly into like their homes and houses. And the patriarchs who control the money and wealth of like these families are have all the power. And only when they decide to die and pass on like the wealth, does anyone else get a chance to have like their own space or their own possessions because everything is like controlled by them. That sounds right. There's a holiday happen. It's the chase place here the holiday of this family. And I remember the, all the events where they end up in prison. Everyone's like, hey, this is pretty great. We get our own space. We're not packed into like sardines. Prison's great, man. <laughs> it's like, sounds like how the purge came to be. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's the kind of thing that I think would happen, bare minimum, with this. Oh, there'd definitely be overpopulation if people never died. Yeah. I mean, unless they also somehow manage to keep the birth population under control. Well, also maybe there's just like dozens, hundreds of planets now, so it's probably less of an immediate concern. Sure. Anyway, the rest of the university is in ruins, and Rawl muses about how it was traditional for the indigenous population, like his family's ancestors, to add a city name to their own, hence Endymion. Got it. Um, What happened to Endymion, do we know? Uh, I think... A lot of the cities were, like, ransacked in the aftermath of the fall, and they just never bothered to rebuild it. And the packs, like, cordoned off the whole area and said, everyone, you're no longer around in this area. Got it. Eventually, he comes across an old tower. There's only one window high up, and his keen former gardener slash bricklayer senses tell him the door was bricked over a mere century earlier. Oh, good for him. So he can identify the age of brickwork with his eyes. I mean, maybe you can. I don't know enough about brickwork. Bricklayers. Please let us know. Yeah, please do. He climbs a tree and manages to jump to the window with some difficulty and finds himself inside a massive, dark, empty tower on a small wooden landing with rotted stairs going up and down the outside uh, wall of the tower. So as he looks, he realizes the tower isn't empty. It's actually full of a dark mass. So dark, it's hard to see. It's basically like what he describes as the quintessential spaceship. Mm-hmm. Like the most spaceship spaceship you've ever seen. Except it's a tower of brick? Well, no. Inside the tower is the spaceship. So there's a spaceship inside of the tower that's really dark? Yeah. It's a, like a black spaceship. So dark it was hard to see. Okay. Got it. It's just like in a big room? 
It's just yeah. in a big room inside of the tower. <laughs> it's the whole tower is like a grain silo with nothing but spaceship instead of grain. Okay, got it. You're really thinking hard about this, aren't you? You're Sorry, it was very confusing. I don't know if it was the way you described it or just like my brain trying to catch up. But that was very confusing. It could have been both. <laughs> But like you are also, I can tell you're really trying hard to remember this. It's going to be amazing next time. To I'm see not going to remember any of this. It's I already can tell. Oh no! <laughs> so Roll descends the stairs and lays a hand on the ship, which opens the door for him because I guess it's a very accommodating ship. It is very accommodating. Also, with trying to remember stuff, I have to remember the bare minimum. Otherwise, next time when you start, to, it's just like layers upon layers. Yeah. And yeah. by the end of the book, it I'm compounds. like, what is going on? It's not like it's like if you forget a little bit, it's okay. And these stupid books that he writes, if you don't remember every <laughs> single detail, you don't know what's going on. I love it. It's so good. Uh, so like, bad. All the pilgrims, all their stories are so important. <laughs> Nobody knows my pain. <laughs> Danielle, please. I've it's, trying to, it's like trying to learn a new language or something. <laughs> Which you love doing, so you should be all into this. I'm not good at it, though. I just like doing it. There's a difference. <laughs> and yet you are so against this language you are trying to learn. I'm not against it. I'm just trying. It's like it's like being jumped on you. It's like, okay, you've got one week to learn a new language. Go. <laughs> <laughs> just because well, I learn new languages doesn't mean that I like learn them in a week, Sam. I don't know what your life is, Danielle. Well, I kind of do, but still. <laughs> That's just different. Yeah. Well, expand your horizons, et cetera, et cetera. I'm trying my best. I'm trying to learn Hyperion here. Give me a break. Endymion. Endymion. It's only 600 pages. It's like I learned ancient Greece, uh, Grecian languages with like Hyperion, and now we're on like some kind of modern version of it, and I have to like- just, Latin. Yeah. Like I have to like, not, not, like not everything's the same, but a lot of it is. Fair point. It's like moving from Spanish to Italian to Portuguese or something, where some stuff's similar, but not really. (laughs) All right. So back to the spaceship. Back to the story. Keep your Portuguese in your brain. We'll figure this out, I'm sure. All right. Let's go. The spaceship accommodatingly opens for him. Uh, He's surprised that there's a spaceship at all here because spaceships are incredibly expensive and incredibly rare. Like, even at the height of the hegemony, with all the resources they had, like, very few people, hyper-billionaires, could afford personal spaceships. And to these days, not even the Pope has his own spaceship. And it's in a random grain silo thing. Well, here with Martin Salinas. Right. So as he enters the ship, he knows that inside it's clean and comfy, not like the utilitarian interior he expected. Is this Martin Salinas' spaceship? So as he climbs another spiral staircase inside the spaceship, he finds a large open hollow pit. And accompanying the hollow pit is a grand piano. Oh, it's what's-his-face. The console spaceship. Yeah, him. Yeah. So Rawl helpfully informs us that he is like one of the only one in ten people in Hyperion who would recognize a grand piano because he's just so special. And his mother and grandmother <laughs> loved music so much, they made his family haul around a piano in their caravan. So other people didn't like music? Never heard a piano concerto? Well, they just um, liked no music way. and stuff, but they didn't have pianos. He used like, you know, synthesizers, things like that. Okay. So he goes up to the piano and begins to play Furalise because, That's of course. What everybody plays. <laughs> yeah. And again, as I mentioned with our Mind Deck podcast, they brought this up a bit more. But I want to sort of do highlight it that 
everything in this book does that Star Trek thing where it's like when they name anything like a philosopher, they always name two like philosophers from the front that we would know from our time, then one new philosopher from Star Trek time to like keep the idea going. Right, to ground it so you know what yeah. you're talking about. Except this book doesn't do that third part. It only mentions the two original ones and never mentions any <laughs> of the new ones. So that dates everything. It's very weird. Yeah. So it's always like Furalise. It's always Rachmaninoff uh, or Bach <laughs> or whoever. Yes. And I think part of that is because of the whole decline of humanity and they had like lost all cultural inventiveness since Earth was destroyed and, the, and they started the Gemini and they became dependent on the AIs. But also part of it's clear this guy's like Western-centric view of culture. Yes, so. there are no other things happening except in the West. Yeah, exactly right. So just putting it out there. It's a thing in this book. It happens. It's not amazing. It's not a great thing, but it is what it is. So he's playing for Elise. Playing for Elise. And when he finishes, a voice compliments his playing. And he realizes he's talking to the ship's AI, which is crazy because the church and Pax had banned AI after the fall because the AIs had been the ones who helped the ousters destroy the hegemony. Is the AI the console that put into the AI? No. We'll get to that in a second, actually. Because... Did he put somebody into the AI at one point, or is that another yeah, story Yeah, somebody the AI. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. Is Do you it remember Keats? who got put in the- Yes, it was a Keats. Oh. It was the Keats that would have been inside That's Bronze right. brain in her Shron loop. I couldn't tell if I had dreamt that, if it was another story <laughs> altogether, if it was... Well, I was wondering if you'd get there. No, it's definitely the Keats AI. So we're all asked the AI, like, hey, you said you hadn't heard playing like that since your previous passenger. Who was your previous passenger? And it's like, oh, my previous passenger was a gentleman named the Consul. He was a diplomat from the Gemini. He's dead. <laughs> a gentleman named the Consul. <laughs> well, a gentleman referred to as the Consul. That's it was the, the we never get his console. name. It's all we ever get is the console. The ship, though, can't remember where or how the console died, or even its own name, which Rawls suggests might be John or Johnny, because he remembers the Hyperion Cantos and remembers about the Johnny cybrid consciousness being put into the ship. Mm-hmm. So he's like, yeah, I get all this. This is all makes sense to me. It's a perfect person for this job. Right? Uh, how coincidental. Yeah. But the ship can't remember any of that because of some traumatic event around the time the console died deleted certain memories from the ship, also very conveniently. Well... It wouldn't be fun if they could remember everything. Yeah. So the ship had been hidden here since that event, spying for Martin by like tapping at all the communication networks of the Pax and Hyperion and helping to arrange things for him, like the plan to rescue Raw, which the ship arranged all the bribes and brought it to Martin's attention. So really, the ship is the mastermind here. Yes. Love it. I'm here for a ship story. So at that point, a Bectic appears to escort him to dinner. So there's probably an easier way into the ship than scaling the walls to the window. But we don't get to learn what it is. So they fully expected him to find the ship. Uh, apparently they like expected him to find the ship or like kept an eye on him and found him and followed him here. I don't know. Maybe the ship alerted them that, hey, Rawl is here. Probably. So we're back to with the Pax fleet. DeSoya is summoned as one of the two messengers was successfully resurrected. The other one was not and will require a much longer and more painful resurrection to recover. Like months. So. So basically if it goes awry, then you takes forever to come back. Yeah, it's extremely painful and requires like a lot of delicate work to resurrect you. But one out of two ain't bad. Right? So that's why they sent two, probably. <laughs> Just in case. It doesn't take two people to deliver a message. <laughs> right. But there's a good chance one of them won't resurrect properly, so you need a backup. Exactly. So the two messengers are identified as Legionnaires of Christ, which is a more extreme faction than the Jesuits like DeSoya, and they have to be growing in power among the church, apparently. Is Martin part of the church? Martin Salinas? Yeah. No. Are we... Where, wait, the messages came back. Are we in a completely different story now? I said back with the Pax fleet. Sorry, Remember I forgot. Soya? 
Yes. I'm already having trouble, Sam. <laughs> We're with Father DeSoya back on the ship. Where, remember it, the archangel craft came, delivered these messengers, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Got it. So DeSoya goes to see the man who was resurrected. He's laying on a recovery gurney, still weak from the process, though he, like the other messengers, were trained to resist the post-resurrection brain fog that lasts for a few days. The man has a message for DeSoya, and DeSoya alone okay. He's to immediately turn over command of the ship and the fleet and get into the Archangel ship and go to where it's pre-programmed to take him. This is a direct order from Pope Julius XIV himself. So... That's his instructions. No no questioning them. Okay. Is he going to do it? Yeah. DeSoya complies, transfers to the Archangel ship, which immediately starts a countdown, like two minutes until hypervelocity, and he has just enough time to strap himself into an acceleration couch, which is more like a mortician slab than like a couch. Like it has like a raised lip around it so it can catch all this goo, and Ooh, it has like automated tasty. hoses that wash things off of it. So Sounds it's fun. really just there to like catch his body parts so he can be resurrected later. If they don't catch the body parts, can he not be resurrected? I think it's more difficult. You have to like put it onto a second person, like in Father Hoyt. And mm-hmm. Father DeRay. Right. Uh, you, just need, you need a source of mass of some kind, I think. So what would happen if, like, the body disappeared or whatever, and the cruciform remained, Yep. but nobody found the cruciform? I guess it would, it would wait until someone found it and put it onto another body. What if it just, like, lived forever in the forest, buried or something? Then it's just sitting there doing nothing. So the person would cease existing, right? And so far as... They're temporarily non-existent until they could be resurrected again. So that would be like, like the only way to like kind of die. Kind of. I mean, I, the potential is there. Like they have the potential to be resurrected. Remember, I believe it was the Shrike that ripped the cruciform out of Leonard Hoyt, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. And when he he allowed him to died, die, right? Yeah. So I think the Shrike has that ability, maybe, and not 100% Shrike sure. Shrike can do everything. Remember that clearly. But yeah, it really can. <laughs> There's nothing the Shrike can't do. Can lay down sick beats. And slice people up with his bladed feet. Yes. Just like that. (laughs) (laughs) It's all anything that is needed to do is just those two things. Yeah, yeah. So Father DeSoya has just enough time to strap himself in and say a brief prayer before the ship zooms off to whatever it's going. And he's going to turn into goo. Uh, Already gooified by that point, probably. Perfect. So I thought we'd start easy, Danielle. That's where we're going to leave it for now. Oh, look at you being short, sassy. I know. I wanted to give you a short one because I figured your summary would take a lot longer than it did. So good job, you. (laughs) Yay! I win. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So we'll pick up next week with Endymion Part 2. Uh, Cruciform Boogaloo, I guess. How many uh, episodes do you think this one's going to be? I don't know, Danielle. This is the longest book in the series so far. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make it fast. Sam, Sam will skip a lot. <laughs> I, Danielle, you have no idea how much. I, this is like, I skipped at least like 40 pages already. Of the, <laughs> I skipped half of what I talked about. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So I'll, I'll try to get through it in, you know, six weeks, seven weeks, hopefully, seven episodes. At least it's been a semi-coherent plot so far. This one is much more focused plot-wise than the previous one. So for better or worse. We'll find out. We will. So there we go. We're back on the Hyperion train. Choo-choo, Choo-choo. all aboard. You excited? So excited. I cannot wait for more Hyperion. You gotta, you're curious to see where this goes and how it all plays out. Sort of, but not really. <laughs> No it's curiosity, my better Daniel. judgment. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Uh, your questions are reasonable. I have no answers. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I'm going to have a lot of questions. I can already tell. Yeah, that's fine. 
That's how this book works, Danielle. Maybe they'll be answered. Maybe they won't. <laughs> Where Danielle just asks a lot of questions and Sam doesn't answer any of them. And then we finish the book and they still don't have answers. <laughs> I can only answer the questions that I have answers for. <laughs> you can't blame me. We should keep a list going of all of our questions and send it to Mr. Simmons. <laughs> That'd be really fun. <laughs> Dear Dan Simmons, here are a bunch of dumb questions. Please write back. <laughs> if you are Dan Simmons listening to us, please uh, reach out. You can contact us at bookretorts.com. You can also tweet Instagram or Facebook us at bookretorts. And if you want to fund a research project into anything we've talked about here, the <laughs> who Endymion is in our cultural history, to hire a linguist to help us figure out all of this stuff, or to get a private eye to track down Mr. Simmons, you can help fund those projects. If only we had Braun. Braun Lamia, she could do it, but she's dead. <laughs> If you want us to fund a, if we're, if you want to help us fund a cruciform to get uh, Bron Lamia somehow back, <laughs> yeah, okay, we can make one of those. That's within our ability, <laughs> so that she can look into this for us. You can fund us at Patreon.com/slash/BookRetorts. Yay, Patreon! Well, until next time, gird your loins for more Hyperion. It's a common. No. We're in it. We're in deep, Danielle. We're going to power through two more books, and we'll have concluded our greatest magnum opus yet of this podcast. That's certainly true. <laughs> <laughs> well, until then, keep those questions coming. I won't have answers. Bye. Take care, everybody. in paradise that's what's that about what the book no it's a movie royal in paradise I don't a royal in paradise oh is it like a youtube suggested thing yeah okay a pop fiction writer takes a post breakup vacation with her best friend where she runs into one of her fans and starts to fall for him only to find out that he's actually a prince <laughs> that sounds like your kind of movie <laughs> sounds like a podcast movie <laughs> <laughs> well you might have ruined the description <laughs>